If you're a B2B business, a B2B tech company, or a B2B marketer, you're in the right place. Coming to you from Studio 26, this is the Interesting B2B Marketers Podcast, bringing you interesting contemporary takes, industry tips, guest interviews, and true stories from B2B marketers in the trenches. Now, here's your host, Steve Goldhaber. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Studio 26 and the Interesting B2B Marketers Podcast. I'm excited to have Zoe on the show today. Zoe, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Nice to be on. All right, cool. 60-second background of who you are. Tell us, no pressure, what makes you interesting? (laughs) (laughs) No pressure at all. What a horrible introduction, right? Tell me why you're the world's (laughs) most interesting person. Go. Yeah, right. Give me a couple minutes to think about that. No. (laughs) Yeah, so I I lead digital marketing strategy at Pegasystems, which is a B2B enterprise software company and based in the Boston area. I've been in the digital marketing space for about 14 years now. I started out in textbook publishing, like you do, being an English major, and thought I was going to be an editor and decided that I loved marketing. Um, And I can talk about that more later. But I started there building digital content and tools to drive adoption of their products. And then I moved to Digitas, a marketing agency, um, where I focus on content strategy for big brands in the banking and healthcare space. Nice. So I got, yeah, yeah. Right now Two, in my role. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I cut you off. Right now I focus on web search, email, social strategy, and I have a great team of experts who are guiding the practice forward. I was going to say two Digitas alumni in the house. I've, I worked in the Chicago office for about 10 years back in the day. Oh, nice. Yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. It's a great place to work. All right, cool. So we're going to just jump into the first case. And this one is all about not just being very tactical with search, but actually like being a little bit more holistic. So take it away. So the company we're talking about is a tech company. They have like a legacy kind of uh, platform, but they're also always investing in new technologies, bringing them on. So from a search perspective, it's a constantly shifting landscape in terms of the topics that we need to go after. Search becomes a very prominent player in that space in terms of demand generation. So traditionally, you know, when you're thinking about your search practice, you have your SEO team, you have your paid search team, and they're kind of operating in silos. At least that was my, has been my experience. You know, you have different team, different skill sets, different KPIs, different tactics, like ways that they're trying to run their channels. And over the last few years, what we, you know, this kind of light bulb moment went off at some point where it was like, A, the search experience is one search experience for buyers and people who are searching. They don't care that it's a paid ad or an organic search result or a visual search result, whatever it is. And also, like as the search landscape has changed over time, just the amount of real estate available in search has diminished. And so we decided in order to be able to maximize our presence around driving engagement in search, we needed to come together, have these two groups come together um, to think about ways that we could share data, that we could share insights, and really make sure that we were one team focused on search at large. So we did this in kind of a multifaceted way. So the first piece being, okay, well, let's look at the, the again, the landscape of search results. What can we do to appear better in visual search results? And what can we think about from like a structured metadata standpoint? Where can we kind of push there to make sure that we're not just kind of looking at our straight, like, you know, organic search results that are just links? So started working with some vendors on that, working with our developers on how could we implement that, create, you know, more emphasis on FAQs, 
video tagging, things like that. That was one aspect of it. But I think the biggest, the biggest work stream that really drove the most results from us was bringing the focus on what are those key topics that we are focused on as a business. And on the SEO side, because that team was so connected to our product marketing team, our brand positioning team, understanding how messaging is changing over time, what are the different like areas that we are that we are selling into, new products, technologies that are emerging. We had kind of this front row seat at the table to say like where do we need to pivot and where do we need to create the right content to be able to appear in those search results. And that was information that our paid search team was not necessarily getting. So when we took a look at like the topics that they were investing in, the different campaigns and the content that they were pointing to, there definitely left a lot of room for us to weigh in there and make sure that they were aligned. So what we started to do was take this very data-driven approach. First, it was like, okay, where do we have some cannibalization potentially that's happening? Where do we have search volume and engagement that's happening from paid traffic, but we're not necessarily creating the right content to be able to point to. So trying to look at those gaps, both from a keyword expansion standpoint and refinement standpoint and the content we're driving to. So being able to just bring the teams together to start looking at the data together was really, really impactful. Yeah. Tell me about like, I want to dive into the cultural side of this because I agree with what you're saying is traditionally they are like, it's like East Coast and West Coast. They've heard of each other, but we don't really talk. So when you when you got the teams together, what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, there's always like a little bit of hesitation around, well, what do you mean? Like we operate in this way, right? And like we're not used to getting this type of input. But I think what we were able to mitigate was this idea of campaigns going out of date. And the thing with paid is when you're searching for a high volume topic, let's say you're searching for like, you know, CRM, CRM software, whatever it is, you're going to see the paid ads at the top. That's just how it works, right? And the problem is that some of our leadership was seeing ads pop up and questioning, hey, why is it, why does this say this particular, why does it say it in this particular way? Or like, it's not, you know, positioning it in the way that we want it to be positioned or where is this pointing to? So it started to get a little bit more visibility from leadership. And that was a place of being able to say, hey, let us help you with this. Like, let us make sure we're aligned and being able to see the benefit in that way. And, I, you know, I think generally like the skills around content strategy that you look for when you're hiring an SEO lead, when you're hiring like, you know, an S- creating an SEO team and having them work with content marketers and product marketers and all of that, it's not necessarily the same skill set that you would hire for on the paid side. So being able to yep. kind of share the value and share the data was really impactful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, two very different mindsets. One is like the long game. The other is a little bit of like legacy advertising interruption model. So I've always, that's why I asked the question is it's just very, the, the organic folks tend to be more pro user. Maybe that's not the best way to describe it, but they're like, they're very much like in it to figure out the algorithms as well as the user experience. The luxury of the paid folks, they just have the big budgets, right? They just, they point the dollars anywhere and they're like immediate results in three days. It's not <laughs> not that easy, I know. But so, what was what was the outcome of of this case? Like, what? How did you feel about the work? What was what was different? Well, it was kind of like we had to do a few pilots and experiments first, you know, to get our feet under us. So, starting to look topic by topic, you know, the for, especially for the big ones that we were most invested in, and starting to do that refinement around. Okay, well, what are these ad groups? Like, what are the topics? What are the keywords? What content do we need to create? What content do we have? That type of thing. And just the general results from that first pilot were so strong in terms of improved click-through rate 
reduce cost per click, especially looking at visits from audiences we cared about, that we just had to keep going. And I think that was kind of the fuel to the fire and being able to say, okay, what do we do next? Where, you know, kind of how are we looking at this holistically? And one big thing I think that I realized is like you can get the two teams talking, you can get like a work stream in order with different milestones, but this ends up becoming a full-time job for somebody, right? Um, and somebody who is well-versed in both sides, like you were talking about, both sets of skills. So what I ended up doing is advocating for a full-time hire to be in this type of role and thankfully um, got this person in place. And so now it's kind of like a consistent drumbeat of let's look at the data sources together. Let's make sure that any content that we're creating really is filling a gap in search, whether it's paid or organic. Yep. Makes sense. All right, cool. Anything else you want to share about the first case study? No, I think that's it. All right. So case study number two, this is all about adopting a data-driven approach to support buyer enablement. So tell us about this company. Yeah. So this company, the same company I was talking about earlier, and, you know, adopted a challenger selling methodology a few years back. And from a marketing perspective, we started really thinking about the idea of buyer enablement. And this is kind of like a key term coined in the pre-sales world. It's also something Gartner talks a lot about um, in their research. But this idea that B2B brands really have to support buyers in their purchase process from a decision-making standpoint, being able to kind of reduce all the complexity and noise that they have when they're selecting a supplier, trying to get consensus, all of that. So when we started to think about, well, how can we do this more effectively from a buyer enablement standpoint? This is obviously very important. Sales is always going to be extremely important in that buying process. But as much as we can be doing on the digital marketing side to support, like, how can we do this? So part of it was thinking about what are the data sources that we have available to us to help us understand where people are getting hung up? You know, what are the pain points they're experiencing? Can you look at win-loss interviews and see where we lost potentially? Like, where were we not as strong in our ability to promote ourselves, help people understand our capabilities, et cetera? Um, We do a lot of client research on our side and all of that type of research around, like, how do people feel that we are differentiated? What type of um, problems do they run into? Where do they most lean in, I guess, when we're trying to um, position ourselves? That's all the type of qualitative data that really is helpful, kind of at the macro level. I think there's also a treasure trove of data that we have available at our fingertips from a digital behavior standpoint. And so when you're thinking about how people are arriving at your site from something like Google, right, from a search perspective, or once they're on your site, how are they, what types of searches are they performing? What are they asking the chatbot? Like all of these different sources give you just a treasure trove of information to say like, where are the gaps in content that we have or where are the gaps in like information architecture in terms of pathing people to the right place? Yeah. How easily was the data available? (laughs) I think, you know, some of it was manual. Some of it was being able to reach out to the right people. Some of it was just not even being aware that it was available and, you know, hearing it from like the CTO and being like, hey, we need to get a little bit more information about those win-loss interviews and like, what can we learn from them? Um, over time, like the client research function has also been built up and established. And so being able to create those relationships with the right people has made the data more accessible. Yeah, yeah the win-loss, we've talked on previous episodes, we've talked about win-loss scenarios. And it is such a, like a like an untapped mine of information. And most people kind of take the salesperson's input as just fact, right? Well, why did they, why did they go with another partner? 
oh, price sensitivities or timing's not right. And it's interesting because it's like there's usually a layer behind all that. So what would tell me like how you approached win loss? Was it purely just like, hey, we're looking at data in the CRM? Do you talk to the customers ever to figure out why they said no? No. So we had kind of a, you know, function who was very focused on that. So from a digital marketing perspective, we didn't have access to clients, though we have done our own kind of qualitative research with clients directly to be able to ask them more about the digital experience. I find that those types of pointed interviews tend to be more productive in terms of getting them in the mindset around like, what is it that you're looking for typically when you are at each stage in the journey, et cetera. But no, I think for us, like, being able to understand which capabilities, perhaps, we didn't shine as well in describing, you know, like, was the issue around not being able to integrate with a specific partner or not just getting enough clarity on that type of thing, like how we fit into the tech stack. That's something that we could think about. Well, how do we play that up? How do we get more information visible on the company website, on any of our kind of documentation websites and make that information more available to sales to arm them? So it's kind of like, a feedback loop and you want to make sure yep. that whatever content you're that you have on the website is consistent with what sales is talking to the client about yeah any data that when you went in here you just were like ignore this this is it's bad data it's not important data because that's my my challenge usually is an abundance of data and and the ability to kind of say like let's just leave that there because i don't think it's productive data anything like that happen yeah i mean anything that had to do with like pricing was not something that we were really going to combat, you know, from an an objection standpoint. I think from a other search perspective, like when for site search or Google search, the types of searches that people are doing can sometimes be directionally helpful, but it's not always like indicated indicative of um, their direct intent. Yeah. So sometimes you have to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Okay. How long did this whole effort last for you kind of take this different switch to, to thinking about data? So when I first started at this particular company, um, and I was mostly focused on the company website at the time, what I had noticed was that the direction that we were taking in terms of, you know, new pages to build and new kind of, you know, content to put out there was much driven by the the product marketing function. And there was very little kind of um, data mining or sharing or proactive kind of insights around how people are engaging, how people are getting to this website from various channels, you know, looking at our core audiences and engagement trends, there was not a lot of feedback loop happening. It was kind of like we were just being told, here's what to do. And that took it took a couple of years, I would say, for us to really change that mentality and start to say, well, here's what we know, you know, like not only here's like how people are searching, here's how people are engaging on the website once they're actually here. Here's what people are talking about in social, that type of thing. But we also know what the competitor landscape looks like. That's also very important. So what I've found to be the biggest um, like selling point, I guess, when we're talking with the product marketing or product team is just like, well, here's the, here's the view that we have of the data that's available. And these competitors who are potentially eating our lunch, like I can tell you what their digital approach is and how we need to match them. And so that gave us some, some real clout to be able to, to drive that and be much more proactive in our ability to inform the digital experience. Yeah. All right. Thanks for sharing case study number two. We're jumping into Q&A and like we always start with, tell us about your first job in marketing. What were you doing? My first job in marketing. So I went to this like summer publishing institute at NYU after graduating as an English major thinking, well, I don't want to teach. So why don't I (laughs) go into publishing? Hopefully make some money. Um, And thought I was going to be an editor. But in the end, 
during this program, I realized and like just fell in love with marketing. So we were assigned this project where you had to pitch a book. Like imagine you were kind of a publisher, you're pitching this new, this new book or series of books. And I was assigned to like the marketing role and had to create this whole marketing plan around this book. And I just like loved that experience, that idea of trying to match like what your audience is interested in with what you're selling or putting out there and being able to connect the dots was just totally fascinating to me. So I did go into textbook publishing and started as a marketing assistant there. And that was a lot more like field enablement, field marketing, but eventually moved into the the digital marketing space of that company. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I like that publishing start. I think it's also too, it's like fun with, but when you have those like almost like group projects where you're just like, this is your role, go do it. And you, I remember a senior in college, I had an advertising class and it was like, I've now given you a product. It was, it was Tropicana Pure Premium Plus. It was orange juice, right? And he was like, here's your product. You have three months to develop a plan and sell it. And it was just so fascinating. There was probably four or five people in the group. Everyone had you know, different backgrounds. One person was like more of a designer. So it was really, it was fascinating back then before have like no one had any experience doing this. And it was just yeah. all pure ideas. And you didn't even know if the ideas were good or not. Right. Um, but it, but those are some really fun times. That's like, that, I think that's career. how I, how I best learned, you know, like just getting thrown in and being like, well, yeah. this is how I think I would do it. And, you know, you're getting some direction, maybe not a lot from, from your peers and leaders. But I, I remember that so, so well. I think it really shaped my, my work going forward. I think too, what's, what's nice about those projects is they're not like so much of what we're used to in our work today is like continuation of things, evolutions of things, the budget goes up or down. And what's always nice about those projects is you're just thrown with a problem. Here's your problem. Go figure it out. And that's, that's super exciting to me. Yeah. It gives you a lot of autonomy, especially at that early age. Yeah. What do you, what do you like most about B2B marketing? What gets you excited? B2B marketing. It, you know, what I like about it, funnily enough, is the fact that it's not super straightforward. Like when you're dealing with these big buying committees, especially for, you know, an enterprise software purchase where it is very complex, there's a lot at stake and there's both a lot at stake from a business and kind of a emotional standpoint, right? Like how much risk is involved here? How much trust am I giving you? For me, just being able to continually think about how digital marketing can support that and a lot of that ties into this idea of buyer enablement. It feels like a, a puzzle you're always trying to solve. And it feels like there's a lot of room for trial and error and experimentation and like what's going to work and what's not. And how do we kind of pivot really quickly to yeah. being able to create the most helpful kind of experience that drives value for, for clients? Yeah, the software world, it's very fascinating because to me, it's like you're, you've got two angles on this. One is the actual software product. The other is the people side of it. And you could have a, a decent product, but if the people, the account team or the success team, like don't know how to, how to right size it for the client, like it's just not going to be a great experience. So it's, it's fascinating how some business models, like if you're in a service business, that's all people driven, like that's all it is. Hey, just get five really talented people. They'll do great things. But it's always right. been interesting in the software world is you got to have both. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the intersection for me comes when we're trying, especially, you know, the company, enterprise software company I was talking about, where we have this fairly complex product, or maybe not complex, but there's a lot to it, right? There's a ton of capabilities embedded here. And like, it's not going to be a straightforward 
30 second demo, one minute demo. How can you really unpack this? And we ended up creating this interactive product tour to be able to serve the needs of like buyers who are just trying to understand like, how does it work? Like, what is this? Can you unpack this for me in in a clear way? And funnily enough, we ended up getting a ton of great feedback from sales that that was like just the tool that they were looking for. And whether it was like something they would do in tandem, like during a demo or just a way of kind of unpacking it in a visual way for that team, it was really effective. So it was great to get yeah. that feedback loop on both yeah. accounts. I'll make some assumptions here about the, the world of software, right? You t- typically have like the product team, the sales team, the marketing team, maybe someone like in a business general management role. What has been your experience on like how to really get a good chemistry between all those different roles? What are some things that you've seen work really well? Yeah, I think getting alignment with the product marketing team was probably the thing that I focused hard on for the first like few years. And a lot of that was trying to get a clear idea of the value proposition, like what's the roadmap? How do we make sure that we're surfacing the right information on the website, across our channels, et cetera? but also doing that feedback sharing. So one thing that we started to do over the last couple of years is create these like search workshop forums, basically, where you could bring the product marketing team together. You could also bring in like the brand messaging and creative teams together just to say, this is what we're seeing from a competitive standpoint, from a demand standpoint, really being able to to hone in on like search demand overall. I think has helped to right-size the conversation a bit because you can get very internally driven. And it's like, okay, this is what we're going to call this product or like, this is what we're going to lean into, which is all very valid. You know, that the product side of the house is talking to clients all day long. They have a ton of information to add. But when we're trying to talk about aligning to our marketing and business goals and being able to drive demand more, more widely in the marketplace, being able to have a constant source of like, sources of data streaming in and insights from our side has yeah. always helped us to have that that seat at the table and and drive collaboration. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to talk about content creation for a second that's obviously very close to to any digital marketers arena. As you think about like the best way to create the content, there's all these different models. There's there's build the team inside, build the team outside, work with freelancers. What do you think works well? Like what's a good balance of how to have a really great content team? Yeah, we've tried all (laughs) All of those different ways over time. I think it depends on the scope of the project, I would say, first of all. If it's something where, you know, we need like a very high level entry point type page that's explaining a specific topic, or we need a little bit of a deeper dive page that's kind of talking about how it works and the value and like some of the core use cases, I would be careful about who I assigned to that project because Somebody who is outside of the company or a freelancer, somebody who's not deeply embedded in all of the messaging that you're getting and all of the education you're getting around understanding the value drive, it's just going to be a harder kind of uphill climb. But then again, you kind of run into these issues of, okay, if we're not doing that and we're relying on maybe internal people to write, then you're kind of dealing with, with, well, they have competing priorities and how do we kind of get in their queue and help them prioritize, et cetera. So sometimes we've taken an approach of pairing a copywriter and a product marketer together and having it be like, can you just interview this this product marketer or just like have a briefing? And we're giving the purpose of the page, the outline, like key points and areas that we need to cover. And somehow this blend seems to work where there's still input being taken basically from both places and the copywriting 
is just streamlined going forward. Yeah, that's a nice model. I like that. I, I think journalism being alive in a lot of the marketing organizations is a really good thing. I think you need, especially with very software product heavy messaging, you the comfort zone or the culture of the company tends to be like, let's just talk features benefits. That's the role of marketing, right? But having a marketing person there to translate that into, nope, we got to focus on pain first. We have to earn their trust. And then we, we can have the feature benefit conversation when that's the right time. All right, next question. What drives you nuts? So, you know, let's say it's Monday morning, you're looking out at your entire week and you're like, I'm going to cancel all these meetings and I'm not taking these phone calls from anyone. Like, what are, what are some things that you just wish would be a lot easier? Yeah, I think that, you know, the being overscheduled problem is something, something that everybody faces. Um, I am not immune to it. I think for me, it's just being able to um, have like a shared vision and understanding around like, what are the priorities that we're trying to tackle in the second half? And, um, you know, as I've progressed in my career, in my role, like you're, you become very reliant in a good way on these other teams, like the creative team, the messaging team, product marketing, all these teams I've been talking about, you become very reliant on them and have to be partners with them, but they may have other priorities than you do. And so it becomes a point of like constant negotiation, I guess, to try and get your um, your projects move forward and trying to help people understand like, why is this important? And just kind of <laughs> wrangling for time and and resources. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's a theme I've seen as well, where much of corporate America has a problem in saying no. Just saying like, we're not doing that this quarter, this year, it's not a priority. It's not to say that that I don't like that project. It's just not a priority. And some companies are really great. Like leadership can step into that role and align everyone and say, this is what we're, we're focused on. Other times that doesn't happen. And leadership tends to to default to the management team to kind of figure out, oh, you guys, you guys work it out. You guys determine what's important. And that's really, that's really hard because then it creates a lot of, well, yeah, I have, I have this much cloud in the organization and I think I can get this. So I'm going to try to ask for it. And, right. um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a hard world to live in. Yeah. All right. Final question. Looking back on your career, what are some things that you would kind of tell your younger self? Hey, don't worry so much about this or, oh, you should have totally focused on that area when when you were a younger marketer, what are some things looking back that you wish you would have done differently? Yeah, I think for a period of time when we were in this kind of shift around what I was describing before, where we it, it was very product marketing driven, like the content that goes on the website, and we were kind of changing that to, well, what do we need to have like a wider footprint and be able to support our marketing goals? And even when thinking about buyer enablement, there was a period of time where I was so focused on like, the it's the responsibility of the website. <laughs> to deliver on this and to really like support buyers in their in their process. And the website and their experience with like your digital ecosystem is important. It is not the only thing. It is probably a smaller thing of what all of their interactions, you know, understanding of like your reputation and all of the the vendor selection that goes into the research process. Um, I feel like I would have been like, take some, you know, shift your perspective a little bit. Like think about the ways that we can do this in a way that's not trying to like force it all to force the website to be the the linchpin and answer for everything. And I think as I've like done more just UX research and done been exposed to more client research and all the data I was sharing with you before, um, and also just getting a sense of how not even competitors, but just generally like the role that the website plays in the purchase experience, that has shifted my perspective a lot. 
um, and helped me to just get a, a wider view. Yeah. The other thing I would say just from like a leadership perspective is as I was making that transition from like individual contributor to manager and trying to lead a bigger team, I would tell myself not to take as much responsibility for people's individual performance. Like somebody's performance is not your responsibility and like your problem, so to speak. You know, I think that that would have probably helped me be able to grow a little bit more quickly <laughs> and probably not get so hung up on, you know, the details and maybe mitigate some of my early micromanager tendencies, yeah. which thankfully I had have gone away. <laughs> <laughs> I th it's, it's really hard, right? Micromanaging is such an interesting term because, I mean, it started, what, 40 years ago? And, but now younger folks, newer to the workforce, like they want more hands-on. So like they, they want to be shown exactly how to do it. Where 30 years ago, it was like, don't be that person, man. You can't micromanage me. It was very much of like a, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. Now I've got to edit myself out. <laughs> it was very much like a, I know you're in charge, but you're not in charge of me. You know, like, don't, right. don't tell me exactly how to do it. And I, and I do with myself, I feel like I've gotten better too in this theory of, I'll say, here's, here's the problem. Here's the outcome. I'm going to give you like maybe two examples how I've solved it in the past, but you don't have to use them. But I want you yes. to know about them. And and if you want to leverage it, great. If you have another solution, that's great. But I, you know, you decide. Right. That's, that's kind of been my happy medium where, okay, they know the problem. They know the outcome. I've tried to help them, but ultimately they've got to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And as a leader, like you need to recognize that you are committed to that outcome, but you're not attached to how it gets done. I think that's a big piece of it in that kind of letting go process and just being able to give autonomy and maybe shift to more of a coaching mindset. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Zoe, I really enjoyed getting to know more about what you've been up to. I love I love the world of software and marketing in the, in the B2B space. So I, I could talk forever on this, but thank you again for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, everyone. That concludes this episode of Interesting B2B Marketers. Thanks for joining us again at Studio 26. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the interesting B2B Marketers podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. If you found value in today's episode, please help grow the podcast by sharing with others and leaving a review. We'll see you next time.